having a good family devotional time that is not something the kids hate, but that is fun and so on, then one of the practical steps you can do is talk with those men in the church where they're doing it right. You, you, you know, um, it, 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 visit a family for a meal and so on where they have family devotions before or after the meal, and it's fun, and it's a family time, and, 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 and so forth. Talk, talk with people who've been doing this for a long time. So in, in that sense, um, the practical the practical training comes often best out of talking about those who've been talking with those who've been down this path before you or a little more experienced and 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 and, and so on so that uh, when when we were rearing our children for example when the kids were very young we spent time in memory work we, but it was just fun um uh, do, do you want stories in this it's going to take up a lot of time if i give you stories maybe it's one yes, story sir. yeah you know um my daughter was very verbal, and uh, and and my my wife is English, and the English have have endless nursery rhymes. So, f- from from the earliest days, we we sat Tiffany on our knees and read nursery rhymes to her, and she had four books, each with twenty five nursery rhymes, with a nursery rhyme on the left hand side and a picture on the right. So that meant a hundred nursery rhymes. By the time she was two, she had memorized all 100 of them. And, and so she would take one of those books and open up and see the picture, and she would quote the nursery rhyme. And it suddenly dawned on me that if she could ner- learn nursery rhymes, she could jolly well learn some scripture. So the, the next night at family devotions, we, we always had the kids in our family. She was in her high chair, you know. We make it very simple at that stage. But, but um, I read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, and then the first chapter, the first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 1. And then the next night, 1 Corinthians 13, and the second paragraph of 1 Corinthians 1. The next night, 1 Corinthians 13, and the next paragraph of 1 Corinthians 1. So every night was 1 Corinthians 13. After about two or three weeks of this, I dropped off the last word of each phrase and looked at her. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I have only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I mean, just pop them all in, you know, because the little minds at that age, they're, they're just like sponges, you know? And um, so we, we played that game for two or three weeks. And then, and then she said, one night when I opened up the Bible, she said, Tiffy, do it. So I plunked her, my Bible in front of her. She couldn't read, obviously. Plunked it in front of her. And she recited 1 Corinthians 13. And it was just a game for her, you know. When she got to the bit about when I was a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put childish weight. Well, my wife and I fell off our chairs laughing. But, but <laughs> So by the time she was three and a half, she had memorized about 23 chapters of Scripture. And, and by that time, she was beginning to chafe on it. We could see this, this is not smart. So we switched. By that time, yeah, she had a brother born. In any case, we switched to narrative. You know how kids like, like narratives? They like stories, and they want the same stories read about 3,000 times? So we read the narrative parts of Scripture. And then by the time the kids got to 11, 12, Oh, Dad, we know that story. That's boring. Oh, yeah, yeah but uh, give us something else. Oh, you're not ready for wisdom literature. Oh, yes, I'm ready for wisdom. No, you're not. And a bit of reverse psychology there. And, and then we start on a, a bit of wisdom literature. Start working. So we tried to layer our family Bible reading times and so on. So it wasn't just mechanistic, plowing through stuff, depending on the age they were there and, 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 and so on. And we tried to make the prayer times a fun time. None of it lasted too long. But there are lots and lots of parents who've done lots and lots and lots of creative things along these fronts. Talk to them. Talk to them. Find out how it's done. And you too can begin to learn the, these sorts of things. Do, 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 do you see? 
Nowadays, if, if, you're, if you've got young children, the best children's Bible story book now available is by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Uh, buy it. Use it. I mean, if, if kids are at the narrative stage, that's, that's terrific. So um, those are the sorts of things that you pick up by talking to people because you're determined to do it and get it right. Talking to people who have done it and you, you, you pick up an awful lot from one another. That book is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, a great resource. Maybe just moving a little bit in a different direction with some of the, the implications of the last session, could you talk a bit about the, the context and application of 1 Timothy 2.12? Um, moving a little bit out of the home into the church setting. Can, can you help some of these men who are struggling with that particular verse? Do you realize how much more effective the Apostle Paul would have been if only he'd had a notebook? <laughs> uh, well, that was just a random thought on the way by. But <laughs> The yeah. New Testament would be twice as long. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I... I uh, I, I would argue that on the basis of all of the passages put together on these sorts of matters, what is forbidden the woman is the church-recognized teaching authority over men. And I want all those words in there. So it doesn't bother me if Hannah Gray is the president of the University of Chicago. I've got lots of place for a Priscilla and Aquila doing their thing and training individuals and leading Bible studies and all that. And I fully acknowledge that even after you've got those words in there, then the exact application can vary a bit from church to church, fine. But it seems to me that the church-recognized teaching authority over men is reserved for men. Now, um, I don't think it's because women are dumber or can't study theology or shouldn't get an MDiv or can't learn Greek or lack discernment. I don't, I don't think it's any of those things. There's, there's just no biblical warrant for that kind of condescending um, uh, argumentation. The arguments that are given uh, have to do with the order of creation and with the order of the fall. Now, I could unpack those, but, but that would probably take us a bit too long. Uh, but that means that, that if this is the case, then uh, in a church that is trying to... Um, uh, order its way by the word of God, then we, we will be bucking the culture on that one. We, 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 we will be. Um, but I've discovered that churches that really want to come under the word of God um, won't develop Christians that, that go through life saying nothing more than no. The, the Gospel Coalition um, this, this spring is running a women's conference. Um, we expect between 3,000 or 3,500 in Orlando for it in June. But this is not a, a women's conference about women. There are lots and lots of conferences by women, for women, about women. And they all study the book of Esther or the book of Ruth. Um, uh, th th this, this is a conference about God and the gospel for women. And all the plenary addresses are about the great theophanies of Scripture. That is where God reveals himself progressively across Scripture. And we're running seminars to help women become Bible teachers, to, be, to help them become Bible expositors, and so on, so on, so on. So you don't want so-called complementarians to be known for nothing more than saying no, but rather within the framework of what 
it seems to us the scripture does encourage women to do. You want them to have the best training, the best literature, the best... Re- I, I, of, the, of the plenary sessions, five of them are being led by women. We've brought in one from Australia, one from England. These are first-rate Bible teachers who will be speaking to 3,500 women expounding scripture because we want it modeled as to how it's done. Don't you want women in your church to be able to expound scripture if, if, if to other women in home Bible studies and in all kinds of situations and contexts where, where they're training individuals and so on. So you don't want to develop a, um, a cynical attitude that is dismissive of women. Then you're losing half the talent in the church. So, so, so that once again, you, 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 you want to follow what the scriptures say about guidelines for distinctive roles for men and women, but you don't want that to turn out into mere negativism and, and, uh, and uh, harshness. Thank you. I appreciate that so much, what the Gospel Coalition is doing, emphasizing the role of women in ministry and all the ways that our wives and sisters and daughters can serve uh, in ministry. That's uh, great. Well, maybe just one more question to probe a little bit more on the egalitarian question. Um, and this came up actually from a couple people. Does the egalitarian position have a different or slight, maybe we could say slightly different view of the character of God. Is there any implications there as we tease that out? Yes, but it's complicated. It, 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 is, it, is, um, it is really quite complicated. Um, there, there is a long-running debate on exactly the relationship between the Father and the Son. So... Um, in John's Gospel, for example, the Father sends his Son into the world. And Jesus goes to the cross because he's obedient to his Father. Um, in fact, Je- Jesus says in John 14, the world must learn that I love the Father and always do what pleases him. So, there's the Son loving the Father and demonstrating the love and obedience. But John's gospel also says the father loves the son and is determined that all should honor the son even as they honor the father, John 5.35, and other passages likewise. So in other words, the, the relationship in the Godhead between the father and the son is a loving relationship. But it's a loving relationship in which, according to John's gospel, Jesus is himself genuinely God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thomas confesses him after the resurrection, my Lord and my God. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Yet at the same time, he is presented as one who obeys his Father. The relationship of a kind of functional subordination between the Father and the Son is one way. It's not reciprocal. Uh, The son says, I always do what pleases him. The father does not turn around and say, oh yeah, that's pretty good, and I always do what pleases him too. It's a father-son relationship. So what you tend to get in egalitarian disquisitions on the nature of God is that this dynamic between the father and the son tends in those discussions to get flattened out so, so, so that you don't see the dynamic that the scripture gives you of the relationship amongst the persons of the, of, of the, of, of the Godhead. Now, if it's of any help, I've just finished a little book called Jesus, the Son of God. It's in the press. It'll be out by the fall. And some of, some of the evidence for that is, is laid out in that book. It's really talking about what we do mean positively by Jesus, the Son of God. Um, but, but, but some of the biblical evidence in that might help you to think through some of those sorts of dynamics.
Thanks. And brothers, continue to pursue that from Scripture. If you have questions about it, Dr. Carson has written, look on the Gospel Coalition website. There's, there's lots of great resources there. Um, if we can just kind of shift away from the, the manhood and womanhood line of questioning to broaden it out a little bit. And I, I was wondering if you might be able to define, especially for, for the, these brothers who may not be as familiar with it, what does it mean to be gospel-centered as a church and as a individual, as a family? Can you give us some, uh, some help about, and these are many of the things you've been preaching about, but can you define what it means to be gospel-centered and what difference does that make? It's possible to approach the Bible in a way in which uh, in every passage you, you, you read in public or try to expound, then what you derive from it is a nice little set of moralizing lessons. And as for the gospel itself, the gospel then becomes that little message that is preached to outsiders. You, you know, I don't need the gospel, I'm already saved. The gospel is for unconverted people on the outside. So if we have an evangelistic meeting, then we preach the gospel. Otherwise, we have some meeting that's talking about marriage or it's talking about uh, how to bring up your children or it's talking about what worship should look like or it's talking about how to understand the Psalms or it's talking about whatever it's talking about, but it's got nothing to do with the gospel. And then over here, oh, now we want everybody to bring in a pagan friend and that service will be a gospel service we'll preach evangelistically. So there's quite a lot of evangelicalism that thinks of the gospel as a very small subset of what the Bible is about, especially designed to help um, outsiders come to a knowledge of the truth. Is, is, is that a fair representation? Um, there are a lot of people who think of the gospel in that, in that sense. So that, that means that, that a, a lot of so-called gospel preaching turns out to be eventually pretty boring for Christians because gospel preaching means preaching to outsiders, and I've heard that before. But if you actually take a look at all the passages in Scripture that use gospel and gospel-related words and gospel-related themes about the cross and Jesus' death and resurrection and forgiveness of sins and, and wherever you hear preach the gospel and all, all those sorts of words, you discover that instead of the gospel being a little small subcategory that is off to the side for preaching to pagans, it is the great unifying category of the entire Bible. So that the Old Testament streams that look forward, these, these trajectories that look forward, this talking about Jesus as high priest, scads of material on that. What, why is that important to the gospel? Well, we need a mediator between God and us. That's what a priest is. It's, it, he's, he's a mediator. And then all the talk about temple and tabernacle and all of that until Jesus comes along and says that he himself is the temple. What's the temple? The temple is the great meeting place between God and sinful people. That's where the sacrifices are offered. That's where sinners meet God. And Jesus himself is the, the ultimate temple, the great meeting place between God and, and sinners. Do, 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 do you see? And then you have, oh, the sacrificial system of Passover, of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the way it points forward to Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb. Paul says, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us, writing to the Corinthians. That's a gospel theme again. Do you, do you see? The whole question is how we get reconciled to God. Then there are all those passages, 600 of them in the Old Testament, that speak about the wrath of God. The wrath of God because of sin and rebellion and anarchy. That's part of the Bible's whole storyline that, that shows what the fundamental problem of human beings is. We're alienated from God. And the question is how to be reconciled to God. And the way we're reconciled to God is by the gospel. 
So once again, you start discovering that the gospel is, is a unifying s- sort of thing. It's, it's, it's what the plot line of the Bible is all about. And then when you press a little farther, you, you discover that, that, that even when the apostles are writing and teaching Christians explicitly, so much of their, their ethic, so much of the rationale for their ethic is essentially gospel-based. We saw that this morning. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, by, by dying on the cross to pay for our sins in bloody self-sacrifice. That's gospel information. That's gospel news. It's the good news that Christ died for sinners. Do you see? So the ethics of how husband is to love his wife is, is gospel-based. It's not because there's a commandment that says, thou shalt love thy wives. Just obey the commandment. Shut up and obey the commandment. That's all there is to it. No, no. There's a whole motivation that is essentially gospel-based. Do you see? How are we supposed to interact with one another? We're supposed to forbear with one another and forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. As he's forgiven you, that's a gospel appeal. Do you see? And you start discovering that at the basis of ethics, at the basis of um, personal relationships, at the basis of family relationships, at the basis of how you understand the whole Bible, how the whole plot line is put together, you, you really are tied up with Jesus. Jesus and the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done to reconcile rotten sinners like you and me to the living God. That's what the whole Bible is about. And so if we talk about the Bible again and again and again and just pick up sort of little moralizing snippets from here, there, and everywhere, but don't see how the Bible actually hangs together so it's talking constantly, constantly, constantly about how men and women are reconciled to God, then we can say a whole lot of true little atomistic bits about the Bible but actually not be preaching the gospel. So you want to develop a generation of preachers that are so gospel-centered that whether they're preaching to Christians or to non-Christians, whether they're bringing up people in discipleship or whatever, that people are enabled to see that who Jesus is and what he's done, the good news of what God has done in Christ Jesus in his death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand, that's at the heart of absolutely everything. And, and, And that properly understood, absorbed, and worked out in our living, in our thinking, in our preaching, in our teaching, in our evangelism. That's what it means to be a gospel-centered church. Is that fair? Yes, thank you. Maybe just a couple more questions. Um, One question. You grew up in um, French Canada. I'm an honest-to-goodness frog. (laughs) You were educated, um, at least in part, at the University of Cambridge and spent a fair amount of time there. These are quite different cultures than uh, here in Hawaii. But you've spent a fair amount of time traveling and preaching around the world, right? And uh, so the the question then relates to the gospel and culture. How do we um, properly differentiate those aspects of our culture that are contrary to the gospel, which are, which aspects of our whether it be our culture in Hawaii or our culture in particular churches, how, how can we interact with the culture in a way that's faithful to the scriptures but also not um, exalting culture to a unnecessary uh, place of you know, d- preserving it, trying to preserve that instead of preserving the gospel? Yeah. Well, that's a really, really big question. You could, you could talk you about that minutes. one. You have two minutes. Yeah. You could talk about that one for a couple of hours and not scratch the surface. Um, my, my work takes me to every continent except Antarctica in every two to three year cycle. Uh, 
So you do start seeing Christians in an awful lot of different cultures, and you learn some things from that. So, so you know, I'm blessed with the, with the privilege of, of having been exposed to a lot of Christians in a lot of different corners of the world. And, and, and so I've been forced to ask questions about, you know, are they being biblical on this point, or am I? How do I know? What's the test? And so you're forced to go back to the Bible again and again and again and again. You're forced to go back to the Bible. If you, if you live and move only within one culture most of the time, it's harder to see what outsiders see. It's just a lot harder. But the only way you can begin to do it is along two or three lines. Number one, above all, you've got to keep reading and rereading and rereading the Bible to try to understand it. I don't mean a verse a day to keep the devil away. I mean reading it, trying to understand book after book. There, there are little helps too, like the Bible Speaks Today series, which is a good way to get... It's not quite a commentary, but it's a little more than a sermon. Um, if, if you're just doing your first serious reading of the Bible, use one of those things to help you. Um, and, 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 and as you read more of the Bible, you begin to ask questions. Yeah, is this the way we do it? I mean, is the Bible actually reforming us and reforming our church? Is it calling us into question? Or are we trying to domesticate the Bible all the time? So, so the, the first and most important thing is, is to read the Bible. Another thing you can do is, even if you don't go on short-term trips or visit other cultures, is if you like reading. Not, not, not everybody's a reader, I know that, so I don't want to impose this on you. If you're one of these people who thinks only in pictures and video games are great, but reading is bad, uh, okay, I'm not trying to impose this on you. But if you like to read, read some church history. I mean, there's some church history that is thick and boring and dull, big fat tomes full of dust and, 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 and as, as, as boring as, as can be. But there are some history books. Talk to a pastor who knows, knows literature that, 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 that are really exciting and interesting. And you discover then a lot about different times and places, different cultures as, as, you, as, as you start being... You can't actually be there. Reading about it is, is, is second best. Do you, do, you, do you see? And then short-term mission trips can also expose you to different ways of, of, of seeing and doing these things. Even meeting across denominational lines every once in a while, even if you're loyal to your own denomination, um, finding out why Christians disagree on this or that or the other to force people back to the Bible is not, is not, a, bad, is not a bad thing. Um, but you, could, you can spot the problems. For example, if you get an immigrant group coming in, let's say you have, I'll pick on one, but th- th- I could have picked on a whole lot of others. S- supposing you get a whole group of uh, Korean Christians from South Korea moving into uh, Honolulu or into uh, Chicago, it doesn't really matter. The, the first generation, um, they're, they're concerned not only to preserve the gospel, they're, they're concerned to preserve um, the language and, and the culture. They want to meet in a Korean-speaking church, and they will do prayers the way the Koreans do prayers, in the whole prayer mountain movement style, with everybody speaking out loud at the same time. And so, I mean, it's part of the culture, do you, do you see? And then pretty soon you've got what are called 1.5 immigrants, that, that, that is immigrants that, that um, uh, either were just barely born over there or were born on our side, but were brought up in a Korean church and Korean home and so on. But nevertheless, um, they speak Korean because they've been brought up that way, but, 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 but they've been going to American schools and, and they begin to read better in English than in Korean. And some of their friends are now um, uh, 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 Americans and, and so they pick up some of a different set of values. And that can produce a whole lot of tension in, in, in the family. And, and pretty soon there's a danger of the, the, the new generation coming along of abandoning the Korean church and going somewhere else. And then the parents have a big choice to make. 
Do we continue to impose our Korean heritage or do we try to find an English pastor for these people, for these young people, because, because the gospel is more important to us than, than that, that our child marries a Korean-speaking spouse? Oh, suddenly you got another whole set of tensions. Now, I'm picking on the Koreans, but I've seen the same thing with Germans coming over half a century ago, with Chinese, with Japanese. It's, 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 it's a cultural problem constantly, isn't it? Whenever you have a big group that's moving elsewhere, you form an expat community where the culture is more important to preserve than the gospel itself. And those groups make the best transitions where it's the gospel and the Bible and Bible teaching and Jesus that are really, really important and, and, and cultural things that are nevertheless valuable to your heritage are not as important. So, so that I'd, I'd rather my daughter marry a black dude who loves Jesus and is really a, 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 a great Christian than, than, uh, than a white dude who, who is just, just asleep at the switch half the time and doesn't know much about Jesus and is just going through the motions. I mean, y- y- you've got to decide what's important in life, you, you know? And, and so, so that becomes a way sometimes in which in our multi-ethnic cities nowadays, you're forced to think through things about culture and, and, and uh, language and... and uh, um, tolerance levels and, and what's of ultimate importance. So, in other words, the touchstone has still got to be Scripture. But the way we force ourselves to think about these things is, is often a result of our exposure to multi-ethnic mixes in our cities and in our churches and, and in our, uh, in our uh, 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 schools and, 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 and so forth. Thank you. Maybe just one more question, then we'll transition to worship. And, and this question, I think has come in a, in a couple of different ways, but you've been great in helping us and edifying us over the last day and a half. Who edifies you? <laughs> um, everybody stands on the shoulders of others. Everybody. Nobody knows it all. Um, so uh, I read a great deal. I'm just a hopeless nerd and, and, and that means that, that I'm, I'm picking things up from other, other kinds of people. And uh, my colleagues in the Gospel Coalition, there are 60 of us on the council, and um, uh, I teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. We have a full-time faculty of about 50, and another 35 part-timers are adjunct. And so these are people that I interact with constantly. Um, uh, so so um, there is always input if you're looking for it. I mean, you... One of the things you learn as you learn more is how little you know. Uh, when, I, when I was a young man, I didn't know much, but I thought I knew a fair bit. Now I'm an older man, I think I know a wee bit more, but I know far more about how much I don't know. And, and so th- there is always a stretching on to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, and that's not going to change. Um, even in eternity, we'll still be growing. 